This is Rob O'Sullivan from Our Imperfect Future. You're listening to EMG Radio. We're here today with Rob O'Sullivan of Our Imperfect Future. How are you doing today? Doing fine, thanks. Good. And uh, where are you from, Rob? Houston, Texas. It sounds like such small talk every time I ask, but I've been asking this. So how's the weather down there? Hot as hell. <laughs> that's that's the main reason I've been asking. It's been so hot everywhere. It really has. This is ridiculous heat we're dealing with down here. Yeah, yeah. What kind of temperatures are you hitting down there? In my car yesterday, it was 112. Oh, yeah, ouch. <laughs> that was a momentary spike, but uh, it it ranges from 99 to 106 on an average. Okay, do you recall the first genre or band you considered yourself to be a fan of, and how old were you? Oh, God, this is a dual-edged sword. I could go with the Metallica route, or I could go with uh, Depeche Mode as some... Uh, some big bands that I, I really got initially interested in. Um, Metallica kind of existed for me as a, um, a go-to band when I was in junior high, and I kind of phased out of Metallica and into more uh, electronic and, and synth-pop kind of stuff like Depeche Mode. Um, they were kind of my gateway drug to Nine Inch Nails, which I started becoming a fan of in high school, sophomore year, I guess. Back in 92 or 93. That's cool. That makes sense. I can, uh, well, before you got to Nine Inch Nails, and of course I've talked to you a lot online, so I know that's a big influence, but um, right. Pesh Mode Metallica made sense listening to your music with the uh, the kind of the abrasive rockiness and also the uh, electronic influences. Sure. Pesh uh, Mode and Metallica are very kind of simpatico. Uh, in in a very dichotomous sort of way, um, and and like I said, Depeche Mode was really kind of a gateway to Nine Inch Nails because it it, it combined the two types of music that I guess were primary influences as a child or as a youngster, and uh, just led the way into Nine Inch Nails, which I've been a fan of since since '92, and um, have have influenced me heavily in my work. Uh, as much as they've influenced me, I've also tried to kind of move away from them with our imperfect future uh, because of some of the contrasting similarities that I get uh, in comments from people. Wow, you sound a lot like Trent Reznor. Wow, your music sounds a lot like Nine Inch Nails. Those are great compliments to me, and uh, I'll take them day in and day out because that's some really good uh, influence to have. But at the same time, I do try to kind of break away from that and you know, shift my voice up a little bit, especially on the second album that we've recently released, um, to try to avoid some of that, that criticism. It's not really criticism in a bad way. It's constructive criticism or um, agreeability from people who have heard our music. You have some songs to play for us today. What's the first track you'd like to spin? The first track is going to be Input Doubtput from our first album of the same title. The concept of Input Doubtput 
was just a play on words, really. And it uh, kind of represents the, the old phrase that what you take in from life is what you put out, or what you're given to work with is what you put out. And in my case, the frame of mind that I was in when I wrote the first album was largely that of self-doubt and self-loathing. So I kind of combined the words, and uh, we ended up with input doubt, but I thought it was kind of a clever twist on things, and it eventually became the album title. So this is the title track from Input Doubtput, and I hope you enjoy it.
pretty hardcore, but it's not fun to sing at karaoke because there's so little on the back side of the song. It's all front loaded, and then the rest of it's just kind of this instrumental outro. I sometimes like when I'm singing karaoke, I like to go out and rock the shit out of it all the way through the song and stand there on stage until I'm, you know, finished for the song. But there's so much empty space that it doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really go over live. I'm just standing there with a mic going, Yeah, you like this shit, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> So at what age did you realize you were interested in creating music? I was interested in creating music as far back as 16. Um, although I had done some freelance photojournalism work for the high school newspaper and for one of the local newspapers in my hometown, which is a suburb of Houston in Baytown, Texas. Um, I had been doing photojournalism work for most of my sophomore and junior years. And I really appreciated all that went on into a live concert. And, uh, and, and shooting a concert makes you realize there are different production values that different artists bring with them on tour. And I saw what musicians would bring uh, for a show and thought that was infinitely more interesting than sitting behind a camera lens and taking pictures of them for a hobby or a career. And I, I think at age 16, I really decided I kind of wanted to be on the opposite side of that guardrail and, and wanted to be able to do what I chose to do and, and what kind of production I wanted to bring to it. Um, so it really went from me being a fan of music and a photographer of music uh, and a journalist of music to becoming a musician. And I had a good first cover band at age 16 with a, a couple of the neighborhood kids. Um, and it kind of just took off from there. And I've been in and out of bands since then. So do you want to hit some of the highlights on some of those bands you were in and out of? Uh, anything interesting or unusual? Most of them were uninspired. Um, there are certain things in your life that make you upset or make you rageful, or you know they solicit an emotional response from you. And at the time, from age sixteen to maybe age twenty seven, twenty eight, twenty nine, even thirty, uh, you don't have those kinds of life experiences to give you that kind of insight to drive or fuel that rage. Most people don't anyway. Um, I didn't. So I, I find a lot of my earlier work with bands was either in a capacity as, as a cover band uh, with very few originals, if, if any at all. Uh, and I moved into an original band back in 2002. It was all original material, no cover songs. And at that point in my life, I don't think I had enough uh, life experience that really could fuel my songwriting momentum where it needed to be. It was a lot of, uh, well, I was in my first marriage and things were really wonderful for a long time and had a kid, became a dad. Things were great. And, uh, you know, I stopped doing the band thing for a while to become a father and until I had that, that first divorce, it wasn't, there wasn't enough fueling my fire creatively to really get 
good material out of myself. So a lot of those early experiences in bands, you know, it was just me falling flat on my face and not having a whole lot to say. Uh, it wasn't until last year and the year before that, uh, 2009, no, it was 2010, 2011, um, that I had gone through my second divorce. My marriage had failed really badly. Um, the divorce proceeding after that was nine months of pure, unadulterated hell. And it really, that was the switch that flipped on that compelled me to want to do something and to have that experience, that life knowledge, that that bitterness, that anger that I, I think channels into music so well. Um, so at that point, I decided to kind of venture out and do something that I could easily pick up and identify with, and that was, of course, Nine Inch Nails and their music. Uh, and I put together a band of musicians who... We're all based here in Houston, and we decided to do a Nine Inch Nails tribute band called Somewhat Damaged. And uh, through that band and that process, I picked up how to create loops and and sounds and manipulate them in Fruity Loops, uh, where I could take that basic concept and give it my own feeling and my own words and my own musicianship so somewhat damaged was pretty much a jumping off point for our imperfect future we played shows for about six months and had a really good reception um, most everywhere we played and it just kind of lit that fuse creatively for me and last year probably about February or March, I guess, I had really started putting music together that I thought was worthy of becoming something more. This was before Our Imperfect Future had actually been coined, if you will. And uh, in April of last year, my sister passed away from a, uh, a long battle with an um, autoimmune disease, a very rare one that she picked up in college uh, while rescuing an, a stranded dolphin in Galveston. And uh, when she passed away, that was additional fuel for the fire. And then shortly thereafter, I had some health problems of my own, had a heart attack. Uh, that was additional fuel for my fire. Uh, so all of these things that have happened in rapid succession, we've had divorce and the fallout from it, and then a death very close to me, then my own health problems that made me angry and want to do more with my life and uh, be able to leave my mark somewhere, those all kind of added up. And the end result, I, as I kept tinkering away with music and uh, creating my own material, was that it needed an outlet and it needed a name. And Our Imperfect Future just seemed like a really good... Uh, title for the project because this was my future uh, and what it had become was completely imperfect. There was nothing in place the way it should be. Um, and, and I was kind of a stranger living in a strange land, having spent my entire adult life being married and then all of a sudden abandoned and thrust out into the world on my own to try to survive and, and, and 
thrive, which thriving is not even a word in my vocabulary at that point. So that's kind of a, a brief overview of really what drove me to creating this project and getting it off the ground. Um, Lee Yan is, is our bassist, and he was the bassist in Somewhat Damaged. We got along so well and had such similar uh, cynicism of, of things and kind of this playful sense of provoking people uh, that our egos and our, our characters were really simpatico. So we decided to do Our Imperfect Future together, and it's really, up until earlier this year, it's really been just he and I um, creating this music and kicking it out. And then earlier this year, as I started working on our second album, which is The Darkest Storm, um, through EMG, of course, I, I met Sean Griffiths uh, of Feed and decided he would be the perfect third wheel, the perfect complement musically to what I was striving to create. He also has a very excellent gift for sound and mixing and mastering, and that's something that I don't really have the skills in. I'm kind of sore in that department and uh, and lacking. So it seemed like a really natural extension to invite him into our band, even though he's you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we seem to be able to work pretty well remotely through the internet using various uh, file sharing softwares like uh, Dropbox and the like. So that's where we stand. Uh, you met up with him. You, had, you guys had him come down for a uh, listening party of The Darkest Storm. How did that go? We had a really good turnout uh, for our listening party. Um, he flew into Houston the day of. I picked him up at the airport, and we stopped by the house for a few minutes, loaded up a few things, and headed out to set up the sh the, uh, the listening party. We had a really nice uh, nice crowd turnout, a bunch of my friends and uh, fans of our music, and uh, we just we played the album in its entirety from stem to stern, and. Uh, it got a, a really warm reception, had a lot of applause, that, and it was. We didn't do a listening party on the first album, so I don't really have any standard to measure it by. But the applause that we got just from playing back the album, we weren't doing a live show. It was just, it was all Memorex, you know? Uh, it was warm and inviting and, and welcoming, and for once in a long time, it made me feel like I had given something, and I had actually set that that water that high water mark that I had wanted to leave on the world. Um, it, it it made me feel like I had put a step close, put myself a step closer to that. Um, I'm not finished yet by any stretch, but uh, to know that it got such a great reception was very humbling and uh, made me feel like I had done something worthwhile. And you have another song for us. What do you got? Our next song will be Slave to the Pain. This was a song I definitely wrote about my ex-wife. Um, and being caught in that moment where you want something back that doesn't want you, uh, or that would be bad for you or uh, to your detriment. So Slave to the Pain is really uh, just my identification of my own personal needs and them not being reconciled and them not being looked after and them not being taken care of by someone that 
doesn't care for me anymore. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory, so let's roll tape.
title would you give yourself in regards to being a, uh, a musician? A mistake maker. <laughs> a mistake maker. Yes. Uh, most of the uh, most of the songs that I write and compose usually start out with me making some sort of musical mistake, uh, because I'm not really classically trained with any instrument. I've never taken a single lesson in guitar or in bass or even in vocals. Uh, I've never taken a piano lesson. And yet I sit down and I just kind of pick these melodies out. I kind of view them as mistakes in a way because I'm, I don't have any background in, in music. I don't have any training. I was in choir for about one semester in high school and that was it. Um, I, I can't read sheet music, so it's entirely by ear. So I think my title would be Mistake Maker. Um, <laughs> that's that. <laughs> I, I like that answer. That's good. <laughs> um, I, I would call you self-taught. <laughs> but Mistake Maker is much more interesting. Mistake Maker is more interesting. Self-taught sounds uh, really glamorous, and I'm far from glamorous. So. <laughs> Take us on like the typical song creation process. I'm sure it varies uh, from song to song, but what would you say is the typical order of which things fall together? As far as scraping a song together goes, in order, it's usually a beat that I uh, create, or it starts with a synth melody, one of the two. And as I said, I'm a mistake maker, so I usually make... 10 or 20 different passes at something before I find something I really like as far as a melody goes. Um, there are so many abandoned projects on my hard drive that I don't think I could give you an accurate count. Um, so I'll start with a catchy beat or a really nice synth hook and I'll kind of just work into it and develop it and then as the course of the song goes on I'll find you know, I need another part here or there, uh, creating a chorus. Sometimes I'll end up creating a chorus first. Uh, sometimes I'll create a, a verse first. It really can go either way. Um, but I'll find a nice hook, and I'll keep writing and writing and writing on it until I reach a point where I feel like I can't do anything more electronically to it, that it, from that point forward it needs to be live instrumentation and vocals. Uh, so once I get that all sequenced and put in place, I'll take it out of Fruity Loops and export it into Acid Pro for mixing um, and, and an additional recording. And I'll add guitar to it. Uh, once I get the guitar laid, I'll give Lee a call and Lee will come by the house uh, where we have the studio. And he'll lay a bass part. Sometimes I don't get guitar laid. Sometimes I wait for Lee to bring me some inspiration with the bass and the rhythm that he provides for it. And then I'll send it to Sean, let Sean take a crack at mixing it. The last thing I do in creating a song is lay the vocals. Once I have a kind of a rough mix and a rough master from Sean, I'll, uh, I'll listen to it for maybe a day or two, or sometimes three or four even, and kind of let the raw song itself reverberate in my head and give me some direction. Sometimes I'll pick up vocal cues and contextual cues out of the music and kind of pick it apart, find certain syllables that hit certain beats really well. Um, but usually I let it, I let it settle, sit musically for 
a few days before I, I even try to approach it with vocals because uh, I'm afraid of making a mistake. <laughs> and that's what it's all about is fear. You know, I, this whole project has been about dealing with issues that I fear. So it's kind of no surprise at all that I come back to vocals last because those are the things that I think, you know, no matter what the music does to you and how the music carries a, a listener, it's the vocals most of the time that do the emotive, um, that have the emotive resilience. And uh, I don't want to fuck those up. I, I, those are the most important thing to me is, is the words and what message I'm trying to convey and carry through the, the song. So with Kid Gloves, I kind of listen to it and let it stagnate for a little while, let it stir in my, in my psyche. And eventually I find that hook that I'm looking for and I sit down and start crafting lyrics, you know, one line at a time. Sometimes I'll do choruses first. Sometimes I'll do verses first. It just kind of depends upon the song. Uh, so what would you say is your favorite part of that whole process? Uh, none of it. <laughs> none of it? <laughs> this is, making music is a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Um, it, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out a way to get myself out of this corner. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, so, okay. So do you get... Um, is it like purely cathartic or do you get enjoyment out of it? I get a ton of enjoyment out of making music. There's a lot of release in it for me because of all the things that I've gone through uh, in my personal life and all the psychological impact that they've had on me. Um, so it's a major release for me. It's also a great time killer. Um, if I didn't have any musical gift or talent at all, I don't know what the hell I'd do with myself. Um, but thankfully, that's not the case, and I've got a release, and I've got a, a way out, and it's always scary to put yourself on the line. You know, it's always scary to, to release something to the public, because the minute you release it, there are critics out there, there are people who are going to listen to it and judge you, or judge the material, or they're going to point out your weaknesses, and then pointing those things out puts you in a very uncomfortable place as an artist. So enjoying making music, I do immensely. It's, I guess it's releasing music that is the worst part of it. That's that moment of truth where you let somebody else hear it and they go, oh, wow, that sounds really horrible. <laughs> or, wow, that sounds really great. Um, and even half the time when people tell you something's great, you don't know if they're bullshitting you or not. Because they're your friends. And what do friends do? They blow smoke up your ass most of the time to make you feel better about yourself. Uh, but there comes a point in time where you just have to kind of... You kind of have to nut up and let it go and release it and let it just be what it is, no matter what it is, uh, whether it's good or bad. Um, but it's, it's just a very scary process. And a lot of people... I mean, it takes confidence. And there's a lot of people that don't have that confidence to release things. Or they sit on things for so long that they release them one day and you know, their skills have completely changed. And they say, oh, I did this three years ago or four years ago or whatever. And it doesn't stand next to what they're capable of doing now. 
But in my case, it became a, uh, a thing that I needed to immediately release this emotion and this pain and this depression that I was dealing with. And uh, so I just threw it out there kind of with this cavalier attitude, you know, this fuck it all, let's just throw it out there and see what sticks. And, uh, you know, it was really unashamed and um, ballsy on my part, which is not like me usually. Once you've been kind of painted into a corner um, emotionally and you've been dragged through the mud and, and you feel like you've been used up and worn out, there's really only one way to get out of that. And that's just throw it out there and see what sticks. People love it. People hate it one way or the other. There's a lot of truth. There's a lot of truth in there. And that's another thing. You, you've got to be brutally honest with your music. I think that's the real connection for people. When they hear something, they either identify with it or they don't. People have been through a lot of the same experiences that I have and have heard my music and go, wow, you summed that up really nicely. That's exactly what I went through. That's exactly what I'm going through. And I guess that that's the, the great reward at the end is knowing that I've done something that someone else has similar experience with and, and can easily say, you're helping me through this moment. You're helping me see a different side of things or you're helping me see exactly what I'm saying. That moment of identity that other people have in my music because it is so brutally honest is really a reward for me because that means I'm not alone and I'm not going through this by myself. So all of those little nuances and experiences uh, that I've gone through along the way that have kind of tweaked me into the person I am today, um, I'm not alone. And that's what really matters to me. Uh, How long do you see yourself making music? Oh, God, that's a good question. I'm afraid of of being pigeonholed into this this corner that uh, all I can make is angry music or depressed music or whatever. And I think that the point where I stop making music that is honest is the point that I'll lose relevance as a person and a musician. If I can't make something that's honest, that's, that's not true to my life experiences, I think that's going to be the time where I have to look at myself in the mirror and say, Rob, it's time to stop making music and call it quits. But as long as I've got something to offer and as long as I have some kind of memory, uh, some kind of emotional memories to tap into that other people can identify with, and as long as it's still honest, because people change over the decades in their life, uh, as long as I can be honest in my material, then I don't see a stop to it or an end. There's naturally a break between albums, and there wasn't much of a break between the first two, but I, I think there's going to be a, a nice long break between two and three where I explore different options. And I don't mean different bands, but there may be live options. Maybe I'm going to take a little more time to develop the third album. And you have a, another track for us. What's next? This is the last track that we'll be playing from Input to Output. This is a song called Queen Bee. And it kind of represented a point in my line of thinking where I had realized that something was not nutritious for me in my life. And I wanted to escape it and change things and get out and break the mold. And I didn't want to be caught in that, in that cycle again. 
what do you think of the ever-changing landscape for the music industry and music distribution in the digital in the digital age and uh how does that affect you as an independent artist and we've been independent from moment one uh, obviously an upstart band doesn't get signed to a, a massive record contract right away um you know, just looking back on the way things used to be with the major labels and their their constant promotion of many artists and how it's boiled down to just being about a few artists nowadays. Um, you know, it's it's great for me to see the revolution in music and the, in the industry happen the way it has because there are so many more avenues now for independent artists to get their voices heard and get their music played. You know, there's internet radio, there's um, Bandcamp, there's sites like Reverb Nation. Uh, even iTunes is accessible now to independent artists. So it's good to see the old regime and the old ways of thinking and the old models kind of come crumbling down and, and see music being able to be distributed by just about anyone with an instrument and a microphone. Not that all of it is necessarily worthy of being distributed because there are many voices to be heard. It's just like YouTube where everybody's got a voice uh, and everybody's got an agenda to push or something to share. Um, there, there may be an oversaturation is what I'm trying to say. But to see the changes made societally speaking between now and the way it was 15 years ago, it's, it's liberating for me as a musician to be able to say, I'm going to establish my own music and my own style. This is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to put it out there for everybody to hear. Whereas before, trying to sell mixtapes out of the back of your car uh, and, and trying to get the attention of a large fan base uh, was you know ridiculous you're not able to do that those those ideas are not compatible and the only way to get some some kind of attention to be noticed was to land a major record contract you know that was the only key to success the way things used to be but now we're seeing a lot of independent artists gain their own following through digital mediums like facebook even MySpace, which I don't have any use for, but some people still do. Uh, you, YouTube, there's, there's so many different avenues of distribution nowadays, and they're all in the hands of the users, the end users, the musicians, the artists, the photographers, um, the people who make this society great and worth living in. Would you have any interest in being signed as Our Imperfect Future, or do you enjoy being an independent artist? You know, as an artist and a musician, it's, it's an interesting proposition to want to be signed to a record label. Of course, you hope that you're that successful, that you gain that kind of attention and you gain that kind of reputation and that following. Besides, you get a nice good advance on an album and you can waste it on hookers and blow. Um, who, who doesn't want that? There's a lot of money involved in that. And, uh, of course the reality is not a lot of people actually end up successfully making a living at music, even with the assistance of a major record label. 
But for me, Our Imperfect Future is a really personal project to me. It's very, very close because of that honesty that I, that I put out through the music. Uh, that I don't necessarily know if I want that kind of attention and that kind of fame and that kind of focus on my personal life. I don't, I certainly don't create an album for an audience of one. I don't create an album for an audience of ten. I want this music to be heard because I think it has some therapeutic qualities for other people. Uh, but I don't know if I want a million fans. I don't know if I want constant radio airplay. I think I'd probably get sick of hearing my own voice on the radio nonstop. All right, and you have some tracks from your latest album, The Darkest Storm. What do you got for us? Leadoff track is the first song with vocals on the album. It's called Hands Off Me. This is a uh, this is me identifying that I have left the past behind and kind of moved away from it. And sometimes when you go through these things in life, people want to latch on to you and kind of uh, pull you through it. And this was my way of saying, you know what, I got this on my own. Take your hands off and, and let me do this and do me on my own. So this is Hands Off Me. Get your hands, get your hands off of me 
could collaborate with any other musician, who would it be and in what capacity? I think if I were to choose an artist that I'd like to collaborate with, uh, out of this current generation or the generation I'm from as far as musicians go, it would probably be Tom Morello. And there's a few reasons for that, mostly because I'm a really piss poor guitarist uh, and play by feel. And uh, he's very disciplined and yet very cavalier at the same time. And he knows how to work an instrument. And he'd probably compensate for my lack of, of skills in that department. But I also admire Tom as a revolutionary uh, with his different political and, and socio-political beliefs. So I've got a lot of respect for him as a person, as a human being, as an artist, and as a, uh, a member of society who fights against depression and fights against, you know, different societal issues that are shaping the geopolitical landscape of our country right now. So I think Tom would probably bring a, a new dimension of thing, to things. And of course, if you slap Tom Morello's name on anything, you'll sell 100,000 100, records. Easy. So and the 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 part of me that wants to succeed with this musical project says that's a wise idea <laughs> but the personal side of me the personal side of me says i identify a lot with that with that individual so there you go all right now are there any musicians uh, that you can't stand if so who can you not stand at all and if you were forced for one reason or, to, or another to work with them what would you have them do I can't stand Nickelback. Good answer. And and if I were forced to work with them, I would quit. (laughs) Um, uh, Honestly, if I weren't allowed an option to quit, uh, I would make Chad Kroger clean my fucking toilets. (laughs) That's a valid answer. (laughs) That's good. And you have a second song off The Darkest Storm. What track are you going to play for us now? Next track is Aimless Anvil Soul, which might not make a whole lot of sense on uh, first impression, but without giving away too much, I can say that the title is an anagram. So I'll leave it up to the end listener to figure it out and what that song means. But this is a song mostly about breaking away and becoming my own self and and becoming independent, much in the same way Queen Bee was off the first album. Um, But this is basically a declaration of personal independence and and my own freedom. And it's also kind of a stab at a former bandmate. Um, We had a song called Your Disease and... uh, Basically, it's it's kind of a throwback and a stab at him, kind of a wink and a nudge. Um, one of the lyrics in it is, I don't need your permission and I don't need your disease, which is my way of telling him uh, that uh, I'm going to carry on without you and do my own thing. And we had this large debate in the band that I was in at the time uh, over whether we could add some electronic elements into the music or not he was adamantly against it and didn't want to evolve his sound and every song he wrote 
kind of sound so much the same in the same genre. Um, I mean, yeah, there were distinct differences between the songs, but end result was it was not very exciting material. And uh, so it's, there's kind of a couple of different nudges and winks at different people in my life. And uh, so when I say I, I don't need your permission and I don't need your disease, I'm basically saying I don't need that band. I don't need that song we wrote. I moved on and this is me kind of uh, coming into a new medium, if you will. This is Aimless Anvil Soul. Fragile heart. 
I know this is a difficult question. That's why I always tell people off the top of your head, what are your three or four all-time favorite albums? Give me a second here to think sure. about this. Yeah, it's not that it's necessarily a difficult question. It's just when you're talking like all-time favorite albums, there's a lot of albums to run through in yes. your mind, you know? Yes, that's a, it's, it's a loaded question because I don't know if I could narrow it down to three. Mm-hmm. Okay, what are what are a few uh, albums that you really been enjoying? And they can be they can even just be recent albums or just something you've been on a kick. Well, I can tell you historically speaking, uh, the Fragile by Nine Inch Nails is probably my favorite album of all time, um, because it's so widespread in its message and it's got so much material that's so really well developed and and enriching to listen to um so historically speaking the fragile by nine inch nails is is the one for me as far as things that i listen to even modern day um i've been listening to a lot of scroobius pip and his album distraction pieces um i listen to a lot of blacklight burns which is west borland's uh project his standalone project after limp biscuit um Those are the two mainstays in my in my iPod right now that I that I jam constantly. I listen to a lot of Helmet. I listen to a lot of Godhead. Uh, Jason Miller from Godhead is an amazing songwriter. He's re- recently made the push into country music, which is an interesting thing. I haven't checked it out yet. Um, but listening to uh, Helmet, their their most recent releases have all been very excellent, and that's a band that I grew up with a lot, just like I did with Nine Inch Nails. Um, Paige Hamilton being a classically trained jazz guitarist and turning that into this this uh, New York rock scene um, back in the early 90s. You know, I listened to uh, Meantime quite a bit growing up. There's a lot of rawness in that, but there's also a lot of structure in it and his skills as a classically trained jazz guitarist. Are often overlooked by people. Uh, a lot of people don't know that about Paige Hamilton, but uh, just that he's able to take one form of music and go completely extreme with it off to the other side of the spectrum. Uh, that's that's really cool for me to know in the back of my head as I listen to his new albums uh, as they kick them out. And they've kind of made a resurgence back, not in popularity, but back into the scene. Um, over the last six or seven years, and uh, they're, they're certainly a big influence on me. Um, just wanting to structure the songs in certain ways. And, and Paige is also a very clever lyricist, so some of his lyrics are, are really uh, well-refined, and you've got to look for hidden nuances and, and double entendres and all sorts of hidden meanings in them. So helmet's the furthest thing from electronic music but it's it's still very raw and yet well polished well thought out well planned well executed do you have any um musical guilty pleasures is there anything that you uh anything that you turn off as soon as somebody walks in is this where i admit that i listen to Nicki minaj or not yes this is i I don't listen to Nicki minaj (laughs) (laughs) 
my guiltiest musical pleasure would be Digital Underground. Um, if I'm in one of those rare moods, I'll pop on their album Sex Packets and listen to Do What You Like and Humpty Dance and Freaks of the Industry and all the stuff that they released about that same time period. And that's that's a throwback to my childhood. It's hip hop and it's it's funny and it's witty and it's clever. And uh, you know, knowing that Shock G hops on stage as Shock G and then he has a stunt double come in who looks just like him. He's off in the back room changing into his Humpty Hump gear and coming back on, pretending to be two people at the same time. Just the geniusness that went into what Digital Underground was, that, that's, that makes it a very guilty pleasure for me. I also enjoy the Beastie Boys. Uh, I'm very open with that. Beastie Boys are awesome. And, uh, you know, it sucks that we lost Adam this, this past year, but... yeah. Those are some guilty pleasures for me. Um, every once in a while when I get enough wine in me, which is not very often these days, admittedly, uh, I'll go out and karaoke, and, and occasionally when I'm feeling in a particular mood, I'll actually sing the Humpty Dance at karaoke. So. Um, outside of music, uh, what else do you like to do? Do you have any other hobbies? Uh, I enjoy geocaching with my kids. Um, we love to go out and find find things uh, in the woods with million-dollar satellites. Um, other than geocaching and karaoke, I, I live a pretty tame life. So uh, mostly I enjoy trolling on the Internet. And uh, you know, as a facet of that, I also enjoy exposing people to the sides of subjects that they may not have considered. Most often it falls on deaf ears, but I'm very spoken. Uh, no, let me rephrase that. I'm very outspoken with some of my political beliefs and my societal beliefs. And uh, I'm not, I'm very vocal on Facebook and I'm very uh, in your face about it. And uh, I think that that kind of level of escalation and confrontation with people sometimes rubs people the wrong way. But it is who I am. And I guess I was. I was born believing that I was born with this voice for a reason. You know, I have to use this voice to do something with. Sometimes that falls on the trolling side of things where I just like to go and poke fun of people who are narrow-minded and uh, have their heads up their asses, but sometimes it's just about educating people. What do you fanboy over? Titties. Nice. Good answer. <laughs> They're like the universe. <laughs> It's it's the universal answer, isn't it? Titties. It is. It is. <laughs> who who doesn't fanboy over a nice set of tits? You know, it almost seems it almost seems regardless of sexuality or gender, everybody kind of appreciates nice tits. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You've brought one more track for us today. What is the final track? Our next track is the wrong side of history, and it's kind of a Political statement in a uh, a quiet way. Um, there's a lot of subtext in the song that pertains to the current political climate in our country and uh, in our society. And it's designed to provoke some stimulation of a different nature. It's one of my first true political songs, but it's not in your face about it. It's, it's not purely partisan. So... Um, 
it's just you know it's designed to provoke people into seeing things that they may not see and uh and certainly pointing out how certain things are being eroded away in this country i'll leave that up to the listener to decide what that is exactly and what the message is but uh it's open for interpretation uh on the other side so this is the wrong side of history
covered um, your stance on the next album. Do you have anything? What's next for you? Right now I'm kind of in that weird post-release phase of things where I'm not sure if I want to start writing more music and, and working on a third album or if I want to start developing a live show. Of course, I've got a lot of reason to develop a live show and a lot of material to cover and support a live show with, but there's a... Uh, there's a contingency in, let me rephrase this there's a part of me that doesn't want to do the live show routine because i know what live shows do having been a live musician for many years you always get fucked over by a promoter or underpaid by a venue and uh there's always a great expense doing a live show as far as the required gear and the required promotion there's so much work, and I'm doing this this project really with just Sean and Lee and myself, and it's just six hands, and two of them aren't even <laughs> here in Houston. So, you know, there's some hesitation about going live. We'd obviously need some additional musicians. Uh, we're going to need a drummer and a, an additional guitarist to be able to take this live, maybe even a live synth player or pianist. Uh, so there's the whole accoutrement that goes with the live show, and that's just a whole different ball game. It's almost something. It's almost so much simpler to sit here at the house and begin working on another album and just move on. But I'm kind of in that awkward release post-release phase where I don't know which path to choose at this point. Um, there's certainly a part of me that wants to be out and playing live on stage and there's just so few hours in the day to kind of invest myself into all of the things that go on with it. It almost seems like a simpler avenue to start writing another album for me. So I'm at that awkward point where I don't know which way to go, and sooner or later I'll figure it out, and it'll be like choose your adventure, like the books we used to read when we were kids. I'll make a choice, and we'll go that direction if the story ends and the story ends, but uh, you always hope you don't make the wrong choice, and that's, uh, that's where I'm at. Uh, where can people find your music, websites, and such? You can find our music available on iTunes, or you can find our music available through our Bandcamp site, which is www.ourimperfectfuture.bandcamp.com. We're also available on Amazon through the MP3 store there, and we should have presence on Spotify and uh, Napster, if it's still functioning. I don't even know if anyone uses Napster, but uh, I guess it's worth a mention since we paid for uh, distribution on it. <laughs> well, thank you for sitting down and talking to us today, Rob. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate this. <laughs> You're gonna you're make welcome. this so. You're yes. You're gonna make this so easy for me. <laughs> <laughs>